Jesus uh, this morning and the things that uh, Alvin and Roman shared my mind went uh, did a little bit of a trip down memory lane and I wonder how many people are here my age or younger that would remember um, if if my memory serves me correctly I was probably around 13 or 14 and we hosted some Cambodians just the young people I know you older ones got it but young people like me and younger Yeah, Randy remembers. There's, there's actually not many, many here that we remember, and, and I remember clearly, um, you know, one of, they lived in the basement down here on uh, Gap Road and Roman's brother Sam's house in the basement there, and we took them to Garden Spot. We took turns taking them to Garden, as church people, uh, to Garden Spot Village to learn English. And I remember um, some of the young ones, and, and so you taught, you took every moment that you had to be a teaching moment, and I remember driving them around down the road, and we would say simple phrases like, red light, stop, green light, go, uh, red light, stop, green light, go, just to get that into their heads, and that was some of the things, and I think there's an opportunity that we have very similar to that today, uh, and challenged by that, <clears throat> and then when Alvin was talking about uh, the, the, the Romanians hosting some of the Christians from Ukraine, you know, I'm not sure if you've been thinking about it or not, but two years ago, today, this church house was empty. Um, I think I'm saying that right. Um, We were locked down because of COVID. We were not meeting here for services. And uh, for us at that time, it was a matter of, well, when? How long will this be? When can we come back together again? For our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, it might be a different story. Uh, at least, and in other parts of the world, some of these refugees, 80, what did you say, Roman? 85 million? 84 million people in the past year. I'm guessing most of those probably don't expect to ever go back to their church houses if they were Christians and meeting in church houses. And yet, here we are today. And so it behooves us to consider these situations and uh, be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit and how to respond to them. <clears throat> the message this morning is simply, I'm going to look at three more attributes of God. Um, as I was thinking about this message, I saw this dot up here. I don't know if you all can see it or not. It's just a little bitty dot here. And when I think of the message and the, the subject matter on hand, I feel a little bit like that dot trying to address a, message, a subject that is so much, much bigger than myself. Looking at the wisdom, the infinitude, and sovereignty of God. <clears throat> God's wisdom. The Bible has much to say about God's wisdom. Wisdom is the quality of having, what is wisdom? We could ask ourselves, is it knowledge? Is it um, what is wisdom? Wisdom is the quality of having experience, knowledge, and good judgment. The quality of being wise. And I see it as a, the, the picture of, of, of having knowledge and experience and knowing how to put that knowledge to work to help us make good decisions. It's the soundness of an action or decision with regard to the application of experience, knowledge, and good judgment. <clears throat> wisdom is could also be called the body of knowledge and principles that develops within a specified society or period. These, of course, are are phrases that I've borrowed from dictionaries. 
One person has said that the study of wisdom in Scripture starts and ends with Christ. Colossians 2. Just going to look at two verses there. I'll be pulling a number of different verses together um, as we go through the message today. Colossians 2, 2 and 3 say that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and unto all riches and the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So I think we could take from these verses that, that in Christ is hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so to, to uh, consolidate a study of the wisdom of God, we can see four themes of the wisdom of God shown in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New Testament. There's his wisdom in revelation, his wisdom in creation, his wisdom in redemption, and wisdom in virtue. In the Old Testament, wisdom is depicted as a lady. Consider Proverbs 8. And we won't read all those. And you know the scriptures. It's often referred to, and wisdom is often referred to in the Old Testament as a lady who reveals God's will and always God's will and ways in the created order and the law. It's depicted as an attribute. Wisdom in the Old Testament is depicted as an attribute of God, but not so much as a personal being. Compare that with the New Testament, then, where we see wisdom perfected in Christ, not only showing us what choices, what wise choices look like, but taking it a step further and giving us the power to make them. So in the Old Testament, we can read the Proverbs, and the Proverbs gives us lots and lots of practical Insight, practical wisdom, practical ways of how to do life. In the New Testament, wisdom is perfected in Christ and he dwells in us. And it's because of his the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, like we discussed in our Sunday school lesson today. He leads us and guides us into, um, what were the three things? He will reprove the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, showing us how to live in the personal connection that we have with Christ. The revelation of the wisdom of God in the New Testament is found in the personal being of Jesus Christ. In his wisdom and creation... Proverbs 3.19 tells us that the design of creation is based on God's wisdom. I'll read that verse. The Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth, by understanding hath he established the heavens. And we could talk about that and just the wonder of creation, but I won't take time to do that this morning. Proverbs 8.22-31 indicates that wisdom made her appearance at the creation. And, it, and there again, it's kind of this, this idea of a person being there as, a, as, as another person. Proverbs 8. Let's 
I'll go ahead and read these verses. Proverbs eight twenty-two through 31. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up. This is wisdom that's speaking. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the, fountains, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the earth, of the depth. When he established the clouds above. When he strengthened the fountains of the deep. When he gave to the sea his decree, that the water should not pass his commandment. When he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him, as one brought up with him. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him." Wisdom depicted as a person, wisdom depicted as being created before God created the earth and then being present at the creation. <clears throat> Compare that with the New Testament in John chapter 1, where the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Let me just turn to that. Before I quote it incorrectly. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Wisdom, Jesus Christ, the Word, being present at creation, not only being present at creation, but being the agent of creation. He was with God and he was God. Jesus was uncreated. Wisdom was created. If we compare the two scriptures that I just referred to. Because he was present at the creation when wisdom of the Old Testament was created, he is qualified to be the personification of wisdom. So again, we have that, that personal a depiction of wisdom that we find in Jesus Christ. Wisdom and redemption. And we puzzle over sin and why did God allow sin? Did he? Closet. I mean, if God created everything, if God always was, and we're going to look at, when we look at the infinitude of God, our minds will be boggled a little bit again. Why did God allow it? Why did God allow sin? Why did sin even exist? And we know from Scripture that, that God apparently was ready for it. He had a plan for sin. He knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin and disobey him and fall into sin. And he had a plan to remedy that sin. Wisdom in the Old Testament helps us in our sinfulness, but does not and cannot provide atonement. Wisdom in the Old Testament helps us, I think it helps us see our sinfulness, but it does not and cannot provide atonement. For our atonement. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, the personification of wisdom offers atonement and redemption. It's only through Him that we can be 
redeemed, that our sins can be atoned for and we can be redeemed. First Corinthians 1, verses 23 and 24. But we, but we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then in verse 30, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's all found in the personal, the person of personification of wisdom that we have in Jesus Christ. Of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Sanctification and redemption that could not be found in the wisdom of the Old Testament, but can be in the personification of wisdom through Jesus Christ. And then there's wisdom. The fourth theme of wisdom in the Old in the Bible is the wisdom of virtue. I alluded to this already somewhat. In the Old Testament, wisdom directed God's people to a life of virtue based on the fear of the Lord, the laws of creation, and living in a community with God's people. That's how they knew how to live. Uh, the, the wisdom of virtue based on the fear of the Lord, the laws of creation, and living in community with God's people. That doesn't go away in the New Testament, but it takes, is taken to another um, level. It's, it's more complete, completely fulfilled. It is through Jesus Christ, that the, personif- the personification, that we can live out of the wisdom that is in us. And I read Colossians 1. Colossians 1, verse 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now in Christ, in the personification, we can be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Again, not that the fear of the Lord is taken away or that the laws of creation are taken away or living in community is taken away, but now we have the Holy Spirit within us, dwelling in us richly and, and teaching us and admonishing each other through the work of the Holy Spirit. Colossians 4, verse 5, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time, teaching us how to live in community and respond well to those around us. In Ephesians 1, we see Paul's prayer for the church. And I may read some of these verses twice, and that's just fine. Ephesians 1.17, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him. And I'll read verse 18 with it. The eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that ye may know what the hope of his calling 
what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And it goes on to list uh, more if you want to read that. Maybe you even know it by heart. That was Paul's prayer for the church, that we would have spiritual wisdom. So the wisdom of God is revealed to us in the Old Testament and then in a more complete way in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. And it's boundless wisdom. It's an endless wisdom. It's a wisdom that knows uh, no limits, which leads us into the infinitude of God. How does one describe infinitude? Infinitude comes from the root word infinite. Infinite means limitless or endless in space, extent, or size, impossible to measure or calculate. Limitless or effortless, or endless in space, extent, or size, impossible to measure or calculate. And we've heard the words, we've heard talk of unlimited wealth or boundless energy. And Nissan the, the auto builder has developed a luxury line of cars called Infinity. But it's a misuse of the terms, is it not? Because our energy we can measure. Our wealth can be calculated. I haven't forgotten the evening that uh, Elvin's friend was here and, and took us on that journey into outer space. And, and it just, you know, it got bigger and it got bigger and it got bigger. And it was mind-boggling, but it was all measurable. At least... There's people that claim they can measure it. That's not infinity. You can name a car whatever you name it. But someday it's going to get old and it's going to break down and it's going to end up in the junkyard. It will not last to infinity. It's not limitless. We serve a God who knows absolutely no limits. And as I ponder this and his sovereignty, I wonder how to reconcile these things, how to, to relate this to this, the world scene that we find ourselves in. God knows absolutely no limits. He's infinite. Psalm 145.3 says his greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 147.5 says his understanding is infinite. Isaiah 40, 28 talks of him and says that there is no searching of his understanding. Solomon, 2 Chronicles 2, when he, was, um, t- when he was laying the groundwork preparing to build the temple, wondered how anyone could build a house for this great God. He, he was called upon to build the temple for God and he, was, he marveled. And I was going to calculate. But if you want to do a study, look it up. I think it's 2 Chronicles 2, um, maybe verse 4 or 5 in there somewhere. And um, just, just take a look at how many men he assigned uh, to do the work of building the temple. Hundreds of thousands of men. I think there was probably, uh, in my mind, if my memory serves correctly, around 1,300, 1,400 foremen that he had uh, uh, to go over the work. And that was... But that was measurable. That was limited. God cannot be 
extended into a space. And he cannot be extended into a space because he contains space. He is limitless. He is infinite. I read some verses from Job. Job's response to the infinity of God. Or some words he put to it. Job 9, and you could read 1 through 12 if you want to. I'm sure you can read more. I'm going to abbreviate it a little bit and start in verse 4. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered? Which removeth the mountains, and they know not. Which overturneth them in his anger. Which shaketh the earth out of her place, and the pillars thereof tremble. This is Job speaking of God. Which commandeth the sun, and it riseth not, and sealeth up the stars, which alone spreadeth out the heavens, and treadeth upon the waves of the sea, which maketh Arcturus, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, which doeth great things past finding out, yea, and wonders without number. Lo, he goeth by me, and I see him not. He passeth on also, but I perceive him not. It's more than we can comprehend. His wonders are without number. The great things that he does are past finding out. God is infinite. He is limitless. He is not bound or limited to anything. Romans 11 in the New Testament has some words put to it as well. In verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. The depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God is Completely unsearchable. The children sing a song sometimes, and I wonder how can we illustrate infinity? And I'm not sure that we can do it well, but in our minds, in the way we think, maybe this is one way. You remember the song, Could, um, God's Love is Like a Circle? A circle big and round. Uh, the the rest. For when we see a circle, no ending can be found. Something to that, right? You start a circle, and it goes around and around and around. And you can go around and around that circle. And there's not a start. Unless you put a point there, there's no starting, no stopping place. At once you start, you can go around and around. The um, scientific symbol of a circle looks something like this. It might be too small for you to see. It's not proportioned correctly. It's, it's supposed to be a sideways eight is a scientific sim- symbol of infinity. Uh, for whatever reason, I, I don't understand that one completely. I think about it sometimes when we sing the song, could we think the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man ascribed by a tree? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole. 
those stretched from sky to sky. And we think of that as God's love being limitless, and yet the terminology that we use is measurable, if you think about it. God is limitless. This limitless, measureless, and incomprehensible God created the universe, and he delighted in it. Did you ever think about it? I didn't think about it. I don't think I ever thought about it until just this weekend as I was... Uh, preparing for this message, Genesis and Genesis one in God's creation, um, he every day at the end of the day he said God created this and it was good and it was good and it was good and then in the seventh day when after he created mankind he said and it was very good. Now who wrote that? Who inspired that to be written? God inspired it. God put the words there. And so God is giving himself a compliment. Did you ever think about that? He said, good job, God. You did it good. You did it good. He may. That's the thing of it. He may do that. You and I uh, would, would set ourselves up for some uh, problems if we would get so arrogant as to... Some could be said about some of the current teaching about... Um, having a good opinion of yourself. But God never takes that out of context because he's limitless. He is not bound by anything. He's not limited to anything. Creation wasn't hard work for him. All we say that he, and we believe that he did um, create the seventh day as a day of rest and worship, but it wasn't because he was tired. It wasn't because he was wore out. It wasn't like us who really need it. Or some, yeah, most of the times we need it. We need a day of rest, and it's good for us. Not, God didn't need it. He wasn't tired. Redemption wasn't too hard for him. It wasn't hard work. He delighted in it because he's limitless, and he's measureless, and he's incomprehensible. And sometimes I'm concerned, and I, I glean some of these thoughts from uh, A.W. Tozer's writings, You know, consider the world of nature. We've come to the place where our knowledge, storms are predictable. We have the weather forecast, um, and there's quirks and there's things that happen. But by and large, we can predict, we can get pretty close to knowing what the weather habits, what patterns are going to be. We know when it's the best time to plant corn. We know when it's the best time to put the fertilizer or all that. We, we have it all down pat. When the sun sets and there's a beautiful sunset, we know that scientifically that's because of the gases and the rays and the combination of things in the atmosphere that creates this beautiful combination of colors. And we marvel at that. But in all of our knowledge, you know, the caution that is raised is, have we reduced the wonder of the creative master of the universe into scientific formulas that we can measure, that we can calculate, that we can understand. A.W. Tozer wrote this, we ought to stop thinking like scientists and start thinking like psalmists. And I kind of like that. We ought to stop thinking like scientists and start thinking like psalmists and regain the wonder of who he is, this limitless, this measureless, incomprehensible God. He wants to dwell in us. He gives us the privilege to dwell on us. Back to Colossians 1. 
I'm sorry, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on the things in the earth, for you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now, when we develop that walk with God and that life in God, we're setting ourselves up for something that is has no end. It's limitless. We'll, we'll go pl- God can take us places that we cannot imagine and are way beyond what we can comprehend. This infinite Godhead invites us into himself. Now I want to switch gears and talk a bit about his sovereignty. Actually, not a whole lot different than his infinitude. His infinitude is more to do with his ability to be measured or not able to be measured. His sovereignty has to do with his rulership. A sovereign is a supreme ruler, especially a monarch, possessing supreme or ultimate power. And we see men on the world scene today misusing the authority and the power that they have, acting like sovereigns but misusing that authority that they have. A sovereign is someone who bows to no one. He's not responsible to anyone. He is his own governor. So in light of God's infinity, it follows suit that he is sovereign. One of the most common names given to God in the scripture is Yahweh, which is translated as Lord in the English language. The name is used over 7,000 times as a name of God, and specifically as a name of Jesus Christ. To consolidate our study of his sovereignty, let's look at three components of his sovereignty. His sovereign control, his sovereign authority, and his sovereign presence. His sovereign control is a fascinating one. When we think about God as being sovereign, being king of kings, lord of lords, he is not responsible to anyone. He is the supreme ruler. He possesses supreme and ultimate power. And it's clearly illustrated to us in a number of Old Testament stories, especially in his dealings with Pharaoh before leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. In Exodus three nineteen through 20, when, Mo- when God met Moses there at the burning bush, calling him to go back to Egypt to lead the children of Israel out of the Egypt, Yahweh, the Lord, said, I am sure that Pharaoh will not let you go. And then he goes on to promise to, Abraham, uh, to, to Moses, I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders. And we know the rest of the story. How God moved. And there was the ten plagues. There was the separation of the children of Israel. And them not experiencing the plagues. But Pharaoh and the Egyptians experiencing the, the plagues. God in his sovereignty had control of that political situation. And in fact, it's even we could even go back to how the Israelites got to Egypt in the first place. was an act of God's sovereignty. When it looked like Joseph was being brutally and cruelly sold by his, his brothers into slavery and then mistreated and misunderstood time and time again, 
in Egypt. But eventually, God bringing it around full circle and Joseph being, becoming a type of Christ and saving his brothers and their families and his father and his people from starvation and annihilation from the earth due to starvation. God's sovereignty dictated those events. In Exodus 6, 7, and 8, he says, I will take you to be my people. I am the Lord. He takes to himself people. His sovereignty always produces his desired results. His sovereignty is unstoppable. His sovereignty is universal. It covers all the events of nature and history. And we could go on with a number of uh, uh, scriptures. uh, Daniel 2 20 through 21 says, He removeth kings and setteth up kings. Do we believe that? Do we believe that He's still doing it today? And I don't understand why God allows men like people, countries like Russia, for instance, a current thing that's on our minds every day, to invade Ukraine and we see the chaos and the destruction. I hope and I believe that someday we'll be able to look back and we'll see the picture. But today we don't. But in the meantime, there's people suffering. There's 84 million people being displaced in the past year, in one year, due to all kinds of things. And in the middle of that, I'm saying that God is sovereign, even in the world and in the political scene in the world. I'm, I'm really not sure how to reconcile that in my mind. But I think our call is to believe it in faith and to trust That's his sovereign control that we were talking about. Now his sovereign authority. His authority is absolute and must be obeyed. Exodus 20 verses 1 and 2 tell us that his authority is his sovereign authority. His sovereignty is the basis, is the foundation of the law. I think there the words say, I am the Lord. Because he is sovereign, he gets to make the rules. You and I get, don't get that opportunity. We don't have that privilege. God is sovereign. He makes the rules. He creates the laws. And because he is sovereign, we must obey him. Matthew seven, twenty-one and 22. Some New Testament verses on that. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. It is God that makes the laws. It is God that does the judging. because he has sovereign authority and our only option is to obey him. We must give him our complete loyalty. He rules over all areas of life, not just what we consider sacred or religious. Consider 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Eating and drinking doesn't seem like, at least in, in our day, we don't do it as a religious practice in general. But all areas of life, 
he rules over all areas of life. Colossians 3.17, very similar. Whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And then the third aspect of his sovereignty is his sovereign presence. To those who submit to his authority, he promises his presence. Throughout scripture, we see him choosing a people to be his own. We already talked about the children of Israel in the Old Testament. Matthew 1, 23, speaking of the coming of Jesus. Beautiful words. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. His sovereign presence with us. 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 18. I should know that by heart too. I think I have the wrong reference. Yes, 1 Corinthians 6, 16 through 18. What, know ye not, that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. Let's move on down to verse 19. What, know ye not, that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not of your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. His sovereign presence he wants to give to us. <clears throat> First Peter 2, 9 through 10. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a, people, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which, hath not, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. With his sovereign presence with us, he fights our battles. He blesses us, he loves us, and disciplines us. Sometimes we need to discipline, many times we need discipline. We become his tabernacle. He gives us his Holy Spirit as a down payment for the future things to, to come. Consider Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That's a promise, and a picture he gives us of something that is yet to come for us, the fullness. that When we experience the fullness of his presence, we will be his people. He will be with us. And be our God. God's sovereignty is not impersonal and mechanical. His sovereign lordship is deeply personal. He controls everything, is in command of everything, and by his sovereign presence sustains everything. So in conclusion, as we yield ourselves to his sovereign will, authority, and presence, we are granted access to his Wisdom and a limitless journey of fellowship with him. Because 
we spoke of Carl's funeral was announced. Carl's life here on earth is over, but his life is not over. He, he gave his life to Christ, and, now he, and he is on that limitless journey into the presence of God, of God himself. And he is experiencing today what many of us anticipate looking forward to in the future. <clears throat> Again, I repeat the words of A.W. Tozer. We need to stop thinking like scientists and start thinking like psalmists. Let's kneel for prayer.